Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Kate, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It's good to be back, Owen. It is indeed. We are talking about decision-making. I think it was a good decision that we did this today, although we are running out of time. We're actually recording two podcasts on this Thursday, so hopefully we don't rush this one because rush decisions probably aren't a good thing, right? No, no, no. Sometimes, but not always. No. So tell us, Kate, why are we talking about decision-making today? Yeah, well, last year I read a new book called How to Decide by Annie Duke, and it really made me think much more deeply about my own decision-making processes and why I believe it's so important to improve our own financial decision-making. And some of the financial decisions we make are going to be the biggest and most impactful decisions we make in our entire lives, along with maybe decisions like uh, your career and uh, maybe when to start a family or anything like that. So I think it's really important that we actually spend a bit of time talking about improving our financial decision-making skills because I don't think that's something we talk about too often. No, no. And as we're all about to find out, it's not as easy as this was the decision that I made. This was the outcome, which is what so many people do. They kind of just draw a straight line between what happened and like assessing that um, result today. So it's a bit of an interesting one. And I think it applies, and there are many examples, it applies to investing. Um, We'll see as we go through, I'll provide some ideas around how you can think about this and some of the ways that you can make better decisions when it comes to investing your money. And then you'll talk about some of the ways, you know, we think about it in a personal finance context too. So one of the things that was made really apparent from Annie Duke's book was this idea called resulting. Do you want to explain what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So Annie talks about resulting as in when you make a decision, you often evaluate the quality of the decision based on the outcome. So she provides some examples in the book, such as you decided to go out without an umbrella today. If it rains, you think that was a bad decision. And if it doesn't rain, then you don't even really worry about it. You made a good decision not to take the umbrella with you. So you I mean, the decision not to take an umbrella was one decision you made, but you're evaluating the outcome of that, well, the quality of that decision based on the outcome rather than the process that led you to the decision itself. So that's, I mean, that's a really simple example to think about, but she talks about how that's really the wrong way to think about uh, the quality of your decisions because um, it stops you actually thinking about the process that led you to make that decision. And if you, I guess, apply that to really large decisions, like what you're doing with your money and your finances, if you're just every time you're only learning if your decision was good or bad based on the outcome, you miss out on a lot of lessons of what led you to make that decision in the first place. Mm. So this is a good one because let's say you live in tropical northern Queensland and it is rainy season. There's probably an 80% chance that it rains. 
right, every day. So if you go outside with your, umbra- with your umbrella, you decide to take your umbrella and it rains, that's a good decision. But if you go outside and it doesn't rain and you've got your umbrella, well, you probably didn't need it. So that's not necessarily a good decision, right? But that still doesn't, that doesn't, that's not necessarily true because there was an 80% chance regardless of what happened. So this is a really good way to test our thinking. And I think she says, she, she drew this picture in the book, which is, you have outcome in big words in the middle of the page and then in the shadows behind it, there was kind of like the decision-making process or the result. And effectively, we let that guide our decision-making and whether that was a good decision or not. And we see this in investing all the time. You might get some punter on Reddit or on Facebook who absolutely knows nothing about investing. Like they're an absolute rookie, but they're quite happy to give everyone their advice on a stock. The stock that they recommend is some crappy small company from Australia does mining maybe, it goes up 10 times and all of a sudden that person is a superstar on Facebook and Reddit, right? Because of that outcome. But really, the chance of that happening is probably one in a thousand or one in a hundred, right? And they just happen to make that right call. But all of a sudden, we apply this kind of label as great investor according to this person who probably doesn't deserve it. So I think we see that all the time in investing and we see it all the time on Facebook That's why when we talk about investing returns, we say, look at the longer term time horizon here because you might end up resulting, you know, your super fund based on one quarter's performance, based on one month's performance when that stuff's really random. So this brings in a really important point, Kate, then why is it important for us to consider improving our decision-making skills? Yeah. So I think sometimes we can make excellent decisions and they turn out poorly or we can make really bad decisions. And for some reason, you just get lucky and the, you end up with a really good outcome. And that means we can sometimes learn the long, wrong lessons. And um, it doesn't mean that that process is repeatable. So you might have, yeah, as Owen said, got a, a stock tip off a mate. And for some reason, you invested it, put all your money in and you, I, I don't know, your investment went up 100%. And you think that that result means that you should do this again and again and again and repeat that process. And a lot of the times that isn't repeatable. So I think it really forces us to look back and go, actually, we need to think about our decision separate to what the result was. And that's what Annie talks a lot about in her her book. Um, And one of the things she suggests doing is evaluate uh, the results and evaluate the decisions. So listing the reasons why you had a good or a bad outcome despite a, um, a good or a poor decision-making process. So what are some of the things that happened inside or outside of your control that you didn't anticipate? And one of the ways to do this practically is the next time you're going to invest in a share or ETF, um, just to bring it back to investing, actually writing down the reasons that you're choosing to make that investment. Or let's say you're um, yeah, choosing to... Um, Buy Bitcoin. Yeah. Even if it's something that you think maybe you shouldn't be doing, writing down the reasons, maybe three or four, why you've chosen to make that decision. And then once you sort of, the outcome sort of plays out, sometimes it takes many, many years for an outcome to play out, but you can try it out with sort of shorter time frame decisions as well. You can actually look back and go, what was the outcome? And do was it a good or a bad outcome? And would the decision-making process I made change now that I knew the outcome. And so you can actually go through, how did I make that decision? And was it a sound process? And was it directly correlated to the outcome? One of the things that jumped out at me when I read this, Kate, and just 
again now you saying this, writing it down is really important because there's something that happens after the outcome occurs. Like when there's a result, we tend to have, you know, you can call it whatever you want, maybe like recency bias. You could call it outcome bias. It could be whatever you want to call it. It's a bias that creeps into our little monkey brains and says, well, of course I should have seen that coming. And a really good example of this is back when Apple was first founded, there was actually three founders. So there's Steve Wozniak, who was like this, you know, like the technical brilliant guy. Then there was Steve Jobs, of course, who was the design guru and marketing amazing person, pretty much would have taken over the world if he wasn't to pass so soon. And then there was a guy called Ronald Wayne. And normally the story that gets told about Ronald is that he sold his shares, I think it was about a 10% stake in Apple, so the Apple that we know today, I think he sold that for $800 back to the other two. So if we just, I'm just going to look at this in Google, Kate. Sorry, I should have prepared this. But if we look at the the company's valuation today, $2.2 trillion, not to mention all the dividends, his personal investment would be worth $220 billion. Now, when he was asked about this, he put a thing out on Facebook and he says, I made the best decision that I could have at the time based on the information that I had available. But of course, if he if he knew that it was going to become a $2.2 trillion company, he would have just kept his investment, but he didn't know that. right? So now we can look at him and we can say, geez, you're an idiot, aren't you? When in reality, he probably made a pretty good decision. Mm. But it just happened that there was this was the one, one billion chance that it goes on to be a $2.2 trillion company. So that's yeah. a really interesting one too. So he can look back and go, I looked at why I made that decision and it was the right decision at the time. And I maybe couldn't have anticipated this result happening, but that I actually went through a decision-making process and that's how I decided to sell my shares. Yeah. Yeah. And so this brings in this whole other element, Kate, and I know you want to talk about this, is like the the common pitfalls that kind of creep into our decision-making, particularly for financial decisions. So what are some of those mistakes that we make? Yeah, I mean, even if you outsource your finances to an advisor, I think it's really important to take control of those decisions and actually really understand them. Because even if you do that, you're still making some decision into choosing who you actually trust to manage your money. And you're still having to make the decision to execute things. So I really don't think anyone can escape making decisions. And um, I, I think this quote really works well from Greg McCohen in his book, Essentialism, where he said, when we surrender our ability to choose something or someone else will stop in to choose for us. And I, I think sometimes we can get so overwhelmed with our finances that we make the decision to not actually make a decision. And we, we don't realize that by doing that, a decision's already been made for us. Because by not taking action, you're, you're missing the opportunity to do X, Y, and Z with your money instead. So I, I think that's always an important one not making a decision is still a decision. And I think even if you do choose to not make a decision, you should write down the reasons why at that time you're not making a decision and uh, like come back, uh, put a date in your calendar to revise, review those notes and actually make it just like think through it again and decide, am I going to make a decision now three months later? So I guess some of the, the common mistakes we make when making financial decisions, which are really helpful to learn from because making too many wrong decisions with our finances can cost us really a lot over our lifetime. And some of them are that we're too trusting 
getting advice from the internet. I know there's been a lot of press recently about Aussies getting their advice from TikTok. Um, I mean, there's there's some... FinTok. Good, yeah, talk. I mean, there's great people out there producing content, but I think you need to go one step further. You really need to get a broad a range of views, uh, read widely. I mean, that's probably going to be more challenging now that news is becoming a bit more limited online after today's announcement. Yes, not to time stamp this conversation too much. <laughs> Do not get me started, Kate. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, so I think it's really, we've talked in the past about making sure you really get your financial information from a wide variety of sources, not just listen to one or two podcasts, actually go on to the Money Smart Government website and don't just get all your information from one bank. So I think that's one of the first things that we we run into as a mistake when we're making our financial decisions. Another one is that we don't always read the fine prints and that catches a lot of people out. And I think that can really factor into our financial decision making um, because we don't have the whole picture when we make a decision. And if we're only making a decision off limited information, that can really impact the outcome as well. Absolutely, Ken. There are so many things here. Like we've got some you know, dot points here. We focus on returns over fees. And then I'd say there's a counterpoint to that. We focus on fees over returns. And so like what's important, and then we get too greedy, but then mm-hmm. we get too fearful. So these are, you know, I think these are all things that some of them are behavioral biases. Some of them, you know, not necessarily behavioral biases, but kind of like just common sense. And so you've got one here, you know, we don't common sense check these things. And to your point earlier on about writing down your decision in our membership services at RAS, like when we, when we release a share idea or ETFs, we write it down. Even behind the scenes, when we don't release something to our members, we write down our reasons for not investing in something. And the only reason really that we do that is so that we can go back in time in the future and we can say, well, why didn't we look at that investment? Or why did we make that investment? Because oftentimes that decision that you make all those years, days, weeks, hours, months ago, whatever it is, when you make that decision, that is kind of what you anchor your your investment to. So let's say, for example, you buy shares of a company today for X, Y, and Z reasons. In five years from today, you've done really well from your investment, but you think, should I keep owning this share or should I sell it now? If X, Y, and Z are still there and they're still like your belief is still there, maybe it's a good reason just to keep investing. And so, you know, this is a really good one. And you mentioned earlier on, Kat, I just want to reflect on this before we go to the next point, which is you mentioned that not making a decision is potentially one of the biggest decisions of all. And you and I see this all the time. You know, one of the biggest decisions that young people can make is just checking on their super. But so many of us, well, I say us, I'm over, I'm 30 now, Jesus. So, so bring that up again. Um, anyone can do this, right? It doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 40, even a young person these days is 50, trying to make decisions about their financial future. They could just make a decision and it would probably be a good decision to go in there and just make sure that they're actually invested in growth investments, so like shares and that type of thing. And not just in like some conservative cash balance strategy, because that one simple decision is would far outweigh not making a decision at all. And, you know, I, I heard, heard a story from Max, who was part of our team until recently. He was working in a super fund and a 26-year-old female called up and said, hi, I'm just wondering if I'm in the right option for my super fund. She, he couldn't give the advice to her, but she had half of her money in cash and half of it in a conservative investment option. This is a 26-year-old who won't be able to access her money for probably 40 or 50 years in something that's probably going to go backwards after inflation. Mm. And this is just scary stuff. 
So that if that person never made a decision to call, well, bad things all around. So, Kate, this is probably the most important part of the podcast. How can people, how can we all make better financial decisions? Yeah, so I think one of the really interesting methods that Annie proposes in her book is say she has a really good framework for thinking about decisions. And I mean, I'll just run through her steps here and then we can maybe try and apply it to an example. Mm. But the first step is to identify the reasonable set of possible outcomes. So if you making decision of what to do with your super, thinking about all of the different things that you could decide. You could decide to do nothing. You could decide to uh, switch. You could decide to roll over. You could decide to go to high growth. So there's a whole range of different outcomes that could happen. Mm-hmm. And then the second step is identifying your preference for each outcome. So to what degree do you like or dislike each outcome given your values? And then step three is estimating the likelihood of each outcome unfolding. And that's a little bit more challenging, but mm. we'll talk about that a little bit after. The fourth step is assessing the like, like the relative likelihood of outcomes you like and dislike for the option under consideration. And then you can repeat steps one to four for all of the options that you're thinking about. And then you can compare them to one another. So you've got a good example of, let's say you and I, we randomly pick the listener out of this week's episode. We say, here's $10,000. You have $10,000 in your control right now. No strings attached. So how would we kind of apply a framework to that? Yeah. So I ran through that a little bit. So I guess the first thing to think about is, what are all the things you could do with that $10,000? Well, you could you could invest it, but then there's so many things you could invest it in. You could just leave it in the bank account. You could leave it under the bed. You could choose to do actually just abdicate making a decision. Maybe you could even see a financial advisor and ask them to tell you what to do with it. You could put it towards your house deposit. So there's so many different things that you could do, so many different options for this one $10,000. And so at this point, a lot of people go, it's too overwhelming and I'm just going to stop here because the effort to go through every single option on the table and decide what to do with that $10,000 can just be too much. Mm. And then so we identify the options and then within those options, we have different outcomes based mm. on that decision, right? Yeah. So maybe if we, let's say we, uh, is it invested in ETFs or did something with our super? Like let's say we put it in our super or we Put it in ETFs. Yeah. So if we put the $10,000, we decided we wanted to put it into exchange traded funds, then we've got to think about all of the different outcomes that could happen. There's already like 100 plus ETFs that you can choose from in yep. Australia. So that firstly adds a little bit of complexity to the mix, but maybe you've narrowed it down to maybe your, your top three favorites. And so if you invest in that, you can choose to do it all at once. You could choose to space it out over a year. You could put it in one ETF. You could put it in a diversified portfolio. So all of these are going to lead to different possible outcomes. And it really depends on time frame as well. So maybe over, let's say you were thinking 10 years, and then you're going, well, what's a possible outcome that I could end up doubling my money? I could end up losing my money. I could go through a market crash, freak out, sell my investments at the bottom and never want to invest again. I mean, there's infinite sort of possibilities with all the ETFs out there. But maybe think of like five to 10 of the most 
probable outcomes. And then Annie suggests actually going through and working out the probability of those outcomes actually happening. Because we either a lot of people come to investing and they go, I'm putting 10 grand in ETFs, and they'll think on the extreme, either I could lose all my money or I'm going to become a millionaire overnight. And so their expectations are completely left of field. So you've actually got to go work through and actually look at some of the historical data and just give each potential outcome a rough possibility percentage of of it. Mm. And what you might find in that situation is making 100% a year is very, very unlikely. I don't even know if that's happened in the last 100 years. And losing all of your money if you've just got a diversified ETF, it's probably never happened in, in the past 100 years either. So those kind of preconceptions are probably a bit way off. What's most likely to happen is you're probably going to be somewhere, if you go over 10 years, the longer you look out, the studies show the more reliable the, the forecasts kind of become. And um, you know, somewhere hopefully positive between zero and 15% per annum returns over the next 10 to 20 years is probably where the most probable outcome is. So then let's say we've made the decision and we put money in. What happens next? Is there an- another step? or? Um, I think once you've, I guess the most important thing is to actually write some of this down so that when you make the decision and, I mean, this outcome is going to take a very long time to unfold, you can actually, if you're really worried or you're concerned, you can go back and look at your original reason for making the decision and see does this still stand up? Is this still sound reasoning? Do I want to change my decision? Do I want to alter my plan? So you can actually revisit the decision as it's sort of, once you've made it, you can keep revisiting it and seeing, do I need to change course? Do I need to make any alterations? Um, This document or wherever you put the, the reasoning for your decision is something you can keep coming back to over time to make sure it's still the right decision. Yeah, you're you're going to give us a a list of questions that you use in like kind of your own template. Um, So make sure you check the show notes for this because Kate's provided, say, 10 questions there for reflection about your decision. And you can use that to guide your own decision-making process. Was it any Duke, Kate, who said, imagine a tree looking up from the bottom and every fork or every branch in that tree is a decision that you could make. But after the fact, what we often see is only the path that we took, not all of the other branches that could happen. And so this is kind of like about each of those, at each of those forks, just trying to make a better decision and trying to, in advance, try and think about what would happen if we got to that next fork and what would happen there. So that's a really interesting way to do it. So how about then, because I think the thing that's really important here, Kate, and you said it at the top of the show, is that people are probably thinking, they're probably listening to this being like, Kate, there's no way I'm going to sit down and do like a a 10-part, 10-question checklist for whether or not I have sugar in my cup of coffee this morning or not. So what kind of decisions are we talking about? Yeah, so I think the most important step after running through even just some basic questions is actually making a decision. And you can work out how much time you might need to spend focusing on your decision-making process depending on the maybe the severity of the outcome. So if it's something of just what are you going to have for breakfast that morning, maybe that's a really small-scale decision so you don't really need to run through a whole heap of different scenarios. For the small decisions that the outcome's not going to be like severely detrimental if it goes wrong, um, you want to be able to speed up that decision-making process as much as possible. So for but the small things, you don't want to be thinking about every single possible option that you could have for breakfast every morning because then you're going to waste half your day. So 
think about the decisions in your life you can speed up. And I think that's just as important as spending lots of time on the big decisions because if every single little decision paralyzes you, then it really prevents you focusing on getting the big decisions right. And um, I think it's Ramit Sethi. I love quoting him, but he, he talks about stop focusing on the small things, like whether you get a coffee that day, but focus on the really big decisions, like your cost of housing, your investments, well, not for him, but your superannuation in Australia. Like if you can get those big, if you can spend time getting your superannuation strategy right, you can spend time keeping your housing costs down and you can spend time sort of setting up your investments so they can compound over the next 20 and 30 years. Like that is going to have the biggest impact on your life over time rather than the decision if you're spending 10, 20 minutes every day deciding if you want to get a coffee. Yeah. Did you hear the other day that Jeff Bezos, who I'm just looking up his net worth, okay, Jeff Bezos retired from or step, is stepping back. This is the key phrase, stepping mm-hmm. back from his role at Amazon. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a there was a, a tweet put out the other day that um Jeff Bezos will probably retire with about $180 billion. And why? It's because he didn't drink that daily latte about a hundred million times. So and this is the thing, right? This is about big decisions. People always come back like if you save three dollars on a cup of coffee, that's a thousand dollars in fifty-five years. So all these different things. We're not talking about using a full decision making framework for that. We're talking about the big important decisions. Yeah. And to help you on your way, there's something you can do as you go through Kate's checklist and through Kate's template is consider the regret minimization framework. Mm. Oftentimes, it's easier to invert a decision, so to think of the opposite outcome. So, you know, if you make this decision, how will you feel? If you make that decision, how will you feel? And sometimes the easiest way is to go with the one that makes you feel the least bad. So not the best, but it makes you feel the least bad. And that's a really easy framework for kind of making some of these decisions and thinking about the next decision that might be. I think we've given some other examples throughout the series, Kate, um, throughout the show about the differences in levels of thinking. Mm. So we've spoke before about system one thinking or level one thinking, level two thinking, which for those who um, are unanointed, system one or level one thinking is this idea that you can make decisions while you're driving a car around a corner. So like, what am I having for dinner tonight? That's probably not the type of decision. That's a level one decision. That's probably not the type of decision that you'd need a robust framework for. I mean, maybe you do if you make them all the time, but you don't necessarily need to go through and write down the process for that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the decisions and the thinking that can't be done when you're driving uh, driving around a corner in your car. Those are the decisions. And the big one there is that sometimes you just need to sit back and you need to weigh up your options and then go through this template to make that decision better and reflect on it. And that's something that I see all the time in investing, right, Kate? You see people making decisions with system one. System one is based on like gut feel, intuition, people who say that they dabble in stocks. These are the types of people that make a lot of system one decisions. And more often than not, these are just random decisions that have no like formula or structure and people never learn from. It's the system two, that deeper thought that they do learn from. And those are the people that tend to make better decisions. So that's Sorry about the, the digression, but that's something that I was just hoping to add into this conversation. Yeah, and I think that helps with the overcoming of the decision-making paralysis by thinking, what is the impact going to be if I get the decision wrong? Because if you if you have a breakfast that you didn't like, that's really low impact over in the, like, the vast scheme of things. You can easily reverse that. You can change that. But if you 
only look at your super once, you change it into maybe an all cash option when you're in your 20s. And if you just leave it like that for 40 years, the impact of getting that decision wrong is monumental and that's going to have a huge impact on your life. So I think that's really just a quick way to think about it. A decision comes up to you, you're trying to assess how much time you need to spend making this decision. Uh, Just going, well, what's the impact going to be if I get the decision wrong? And that's something that I use if just assessing really quickly whether I want to run through a framework and actually write down my reasoning or not. If it's a low impact decision, I can easily reverse it then I'll just make it really quickly, not think about it too much. But if it's something to do with my finances and my future, then I'm going to spend a bit more time on it. And I think writing it down, and as Owen said, and that's what I think every analyst probably does, especially when they're researching shares, writing it down really helps you clarify your thinking mm, and it does. forces you to think about the different options. And you can't really lie to yourself when you're writing it down. And it's for um, you, yeah. Who are you going to kid? Yeah. <laughs> yourself. Yeah. And then you can come back to it as well. And that can actually help you improve your decisions over time because if you end up with a bad outcome, you can actually go back and revisit why did you make that decision in the first place? Did you have any wrong assumptions in there? Did you not know enough information? Was there anything that you couldn't have predicted? So I think that's one way to help you on the quest to improving your decision-making. And I think the other one's definitely reading Annie Duke's book, How to Decide. Mm. I'd love to chat with her one day. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully we can get her on the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you happen to know Annie Duke, please call her up and say, Kate and Owen would love to speak to you on the Australian Finance Podcast because it is really relevant. Everything in the book is really, really relevant to finances and money. Just like Morgan House's book dealt with the behavior, this is kind of just drilling into the actual decisions that we make. And this is like a, it's a really important book for people to read. So if you haven't done that already, grab a copy. It's called How to Decide really easy, like lots of workbooks. You just kind of flick through the pages because it's just reflection and answer this question, answer that question. Just have your pencil or pen handy to go. Yeah, she provides heaps of different methods mm. of thinking about decision-making and it really it forces you to think quite differently about the way you've been currently making decisions. Okay, Kate, I'm going to put you on the spot. Last minute of the podcast, I've just given you $10,000, no strings attached. You have to think with your monkey brain, system one thinking, what do you do with it, and go. Well, obviously, Dogecoin, Owen. Oh, Dogecoin. Good answer. <laughs> Mine, please. Cool. Okay, great, Kate. That's a really interesting episode. So, that wasn't advice, guys. <laughs> no advice. Do not invest in cryptocurrency. Do not do that. Do not believe that that was advice. Okay, that's, a, that's just a bit of a light, humid way to end the show. As always, Kate Campbell. Thanks for joining me on the show. Good to chat, Owen. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au.